North-South Connection Podcast Network. This is Johnny C. in the Event Center with a breaking news story. Apparently, I am feeling the need, the need for speed. And welcome, everyone, to another special presentation here at the NOSO Event Center. As I would mentioned off top, I'm Johnny C., and we are here to talk about Top Gun Maverick, a long-delayed, finally revealed to the public film um, that is apparently taking the world by storm. It's another big release to uh, grace the big screens for the blockbuster summer season here in 2022. And... After as much fun as we had when the Multiverse of Madness came a-calling, I figured that we might get together again and talk just a little bit about this phenomenon. So, Top Gun Maverick, like I said, was supposed to come out in the year 2020, but was delayed due to the COVID pandemic. And, you know, they wholeheartedly held out on any sort of emergency release tactic. Now, I don't say that to be a negative thing. I don't say like emergency release tactic to mock like Warner Brothers or anyone that like put their stuff on a streaming service because it was absolutely unprecedented. If nothing else, I felt like giving people a reason to stay home was a good thing. I don't know. I'm not I'm not trying to get into the politics of it. But, you know, Paramount even though they were they had the 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 new and somewhat under viewed Paramount Plus streaming service they hold they held on wholeheartedly to release this on the big screen and to tell you the truth i'm a little glad that they did and and if you listen to my doctor strange and the multiverse of madness review i did mention that i i got to experience in imax a basically like a 5 or 6 minute extended preview of a a, a specific scene apparently from top gun maverick and i'm glad that i did and they did indeed sell a ticket but I'm not just going to come here and, you know, see the movie, tell you about it, see if it, tell you if it's good, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, go through it. That's a little too easy. What I wanted to take a look at, though, is why are we excited about Top Gun Maverick? What is it about this movie that has audiences excited? You know, that's getting a lot of positive chatter online. Um, earlier views are heralding it as a blockbuster masterpiece, okay? Um you know, I guess whatever that means. I guess it's, that's an easy thing for everybody to say. But it's all positive. They're saying it's emotional. They're saying it has stakes. They're saying it has an impact. And um, I think one of the reasons it does is because the original film lives basically rent-free in our minds, at least for a lot of people. And I wanted to examine the cause for that. Okay, I sort of wanted to get at the root as to why Top Gun is such a part of our cultural, pop culture heritage, if you will. And I think that, you know, talking about this release, analyzing it, is going to get us there. So, you might say, what are we going to use to quantify, uh, you know, everything leading up to the actual release, okay? Uh, why is this important to talk about? I've got a couple of different points that we're going to cover specifically, and those are, to paint a very large picture, we're going to start with the blockbuster status and appeal of a release like this. Okay, We're going to talk about how the fact that this is a one of these modern requel-type films and what that means. 
And then I also want to spend a little bit of time for all of our wrestling fans out there making a comparison to wrestling in the 80s when the original film would have been released as to wrestling now. And could the two films feel simultaneously that like kind of like how they relate to one another now? I'll get into it later. I promise. I promise. Um, but like I said, the first the first important thing to talk about, I think, is this how this film is indeed a modern blockbuster with a mass appeal, but also sort of doesn't feel like a big blockbuster uh, of today's stuff. So let's start with some big picture items as to as to what makes this relevant. Tom Cruise. The mere existence of Tom Cruise is an insane concept to be try to attempt to be funny about it but he he may be like one of the only movie stars in quotation marks out there a person that you can say have you seen the new tom cruise movie or have you heard about the new tom cruise movie think about your i don't know a a, a small minute conversation you might have with a co-worker Okay, and you don't know, you know, you kind of speak vague with coworkers, maybe because they're not a friend, and you say, they say to you, "What are you doing this week?" I say, oh, "I'm going to go see the new Marvel movie." You don't necessarily get into the weeds of, "I'm going to go see Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness," because that's kind of like, "What? What are you talking about?" If that person doesn't follow Marvel, but by saying a Marvel movie, there's an implied understanding there, uh, and if they say what, you're just kind of like, "Oh man, we're going to have to steer this conversation to something else." Um, you could also say that with I'm going to see the new Tom Cruise movie. You know, they might not know what, uh, well, Mission Impossible 84 isn't a good example. But if you say I'm going to go see Jack Reacher, even though I, know, I would argue that's a movie that failed despite his movie star status. It doesn't matter. My point is, is that, you know, you don't probably wouldn't say I'm going to go see Jack Reacher. You'd say I'm going to see the new Tom Cruise movie. And I think that's a pretty unique thing in the world right now in terms of stars. Uh I also think that the Top Gun name brand is insanely recognizable, which we're going to get into here in just a moment. So I think that's kind of makes this interesting. I also think that the way this film is shot, and uh, I don't know, you know, jo- uh, the director's name is Joseph Kaczynski. I know him from Tron Legacy, which is hilarious to think about the contrast there. You know, initially I, when I was, I was going to mention the director, I'd be like, oh, that, that, that kind of gets me excited for it. Um, I really enjoy Tron Legacy because I grew up watching Tron and just seeing a interpretation of it on the big screen in massive IMAX 3D was a bit too much for me in a positive way. So it gets a, a free pass. I don't, and the Daft Punk score helps with that as well. I don't know that I can be critical of it. Um, and that's just something I'm going to have to be honest up front. That being said, that's a complete like green screens, special effects type film. Whereas here we are with a massive scale practical i mean we're in jets flying and filming it's 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 completely different but what's not different is what you want to provide to your audience which is stimuli tron legacy was you know it produced a lot of stimuli it had a lot of vibrant visuals and it was filmed for the imax format and you know it looked like top gun maverick and I think those commonalities make this a very interesting directing choice, and I'm excited from that perspective to see, you know, what it's all about. And and, and those are kind of the things that make it a blockbuster for me. Okay, but the one of the big things I want to introduce here now in talking about why this has like massive, massive blockbuster appeal is I wanted to present a new concept and this this is really exciting for me so you have to let me indulge in this for a moment 
It's the Don Simpson, Jerry Bruckheimer cinematic universe. Okay. Now, obviously, this isn't like an actual marketable uh, brand like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Okay. But Top Gun is a part of the, the original Top Gun, that is, and this one too. A, well, we'll talk about it. Uh, is a part of this unique cinematic universe. Okay. And like I said, or you could probably imply from what I named it, it's based around films that are produced by the Don Simpson jerry Bruckheimer production house and then later after mr simpson's passing jerry Bruckheimer productions okay now there are because some of these movies have sequels there are movies that came out in like 2005 uh after mr simpson had passed and they're still branded as don simpson jerry Bruckheimer productions because that production studio uh remains in existence for the purposes of being the production studio on properties that mr simpson helped create now i'm not trying to sound like a fucking lawyer all right so uh you know we'll get there when we talk about the movies that they have met that they've made okay now i think the best way to illustrate this concept is to point out uh some similarities and what these movies have. Um, but to do that, we have to identify what these movies are. All right. And this is kind of a long list. I'm sorry for that. But I'm wondering, I think some of the fun of this will be when I give the list, what commonalities start to arise in your brain before I talk about them. So here's the list. And it's not a complete list. Um, I, I didn't cut and paste things just to meet my theory, but I thought that these would have the most widespread mass appeal and make sense to a to a large audience okay so here are the films Flashdance, beverly hills cop and all of its sequels um but chronologically the first one comes first i think that's important to mention top gun days of thunder bad boys crimson tide dangerous minds the rock not, not, not the Rocky Damager Brody. I mean, like, oh, the winners go home and fuck the prom queen. That rock. You know, the Sean Connery rock. Mr. Simpson dies at this point, And then Jerry Bruckheimer's Productions takes over as the production studio or production house for these next ones. But they're in the same, the same cinematic universe. Okay. Con Air. Armageddon. Enemy of the State. Coyote Ugly which is a movie that came out just at the right time for a young Johnny C to want to pay to see it in movie theaters at least three or four times. You can do the math. Gone in 60 seconds. Remember the Titans. Pearl Harbor. Now that's the first big deviation from the type of films that we've been presenting. Well, here comes the next one. The entire Pirates of the Caribbean film series. But obviously, the first one, Curse of the Black Pearl, takes place here. And then you'll notice the films dip more into genre stuff becomes because Pirates becomes a fucking financial phenomenon. King Arthur, National Treasure, which is an Indiana, Indiana Jones genre, even though that's not like fantasy. Glory Road, okay, that's a uh, very specific type of film, uh, your, your underdog type story. But again, getting back into the deep genre shit, Try to franchise it genre. Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time. Actually, not bad. Sorcerer's Apprentice. And the ill-fated 
just disaster the Lone Ranger, which is a disaster in so many fun ways, okay? So I don't know what popped into your mind when I read that massive list, which I apologize for the size of, but here's what I think these films have in common that make it a shared cinematic universe, and I wonder if it's going to match yours. Let's find out. And just to reiterate, this is not a cinematic universe, again, like uh, Marvel or DC or anything like that. What I'm saying is they have cinematic commonalities that make them a, quote, cinematic universe. I'm not here to hypothesize that, you know, fucking Ben Affleck, uh, you know, Ben Affleck's son was a maverick, you know, although that would be great. And maybe in the fourth one, Maverick has to travel back in time and help his dad. He'd be like, Dad, I'm here to help you at Pearl Harbor. And you got Pearl Harbor Ben Affleck being like, Oh, where the hell do you come from? I can't do Ben Affleck doing that accent. <laughs> what an ill-conceived film you are, Pearl Harbor. <laughs> ah. Anywho, let's 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 talk about this. All right. So here are some of my commonalities that I think make, uh, you know, create this Don Simpson Jerry Bruckheimer universe lives in our cultural consciousness, and I'm not trying to sound again like I'm insane, although I might. But these movies, you may not have seen all of them. Maybe you've seen a few of them, but I, I, I gotta tell you, these are the they have all this in common. All right, there's always a very kinetic directing approach. The camera moves. The shots are quick. They keep showing you different things from different angles to keep you engaged. Now, it's not that rapid. They're not, this isn't like a fucking YouTube video you put on for your four-year-old when you desperately need a moment to bang your head against the wall. And they're like, ooh, shapes, colors, stars, shapes. You know, that's you know, and I'm not trying to mock or make fun of four-year-olds, all right, or parents that are finding themselves in those situations. Um, but it, it moves at a pace, all right? Now, this is this one I, I point out not for any sort of particular reason. You know, I think it's important to, to mention in Top, you know, specifically that Top Gun was, uh, you know, produced as recruitment, quote-unquote. Uh, but the point is, is that there's a lot of military engagement in a lot of these films or films that revolve around authority type figures but also these are very common film tropes as well which i think they're it, it makes them good genres to tap into such as movies about various arms of the united states military or you know the police uh you know the defenders of the public if you will uh you know even in the the rock i think um Oh, what's his name? Nick Cage is like a FBI, like chemical lab nerd guy, which is fine. It's great. It's actually part of what makes that movie very entertaining. But, you know, there's that level of engagement uh, in nationalism as a part of it. It just is what it is. Uh, The characters that are likable are very, very likable. Easily likable, okay? Whereas the hateable characters are very hateable. And they're very easily hateable. Uh, Magneto. Sometimes it's very easy to be angry at Magneto. But you probably understand like where he's coming from. To a certain extent. Like you could empathize. Empathy. Fucking compassion. Understanding. 
I don't know. No, I don't know that anyone's ever done a deep site. Well, I was going to use Iceman from Top Gun as my example. I was going to say, I don't know if anyone has ever done like a deep psychological uh, evaluation of Iceman, but Top Gun's not the best movie to use that as because of its cult status it's gained over the years. So I don't know. The bad guy in Beverly Hills Cop, like no one's ever done like a deep diagnosis of him. It's just very broad strokes of hateability and villainous and very broad strokes of heroism and likability. Okay. But that makes it easy for audiences, meaning the general audience, someone who bought a ticket because there's fucking air conditioning in the theater and their apartment doesn't have it, just someone, you know, that's that's in the theater, a general audience. And these things make it very easy to access these films. Now, I'm not saying that these films aren't deep or, well, maybe some of them are. Okay, then I just looked at my list and fucking saw Armageddon. And I'm like, oh, did I really say that? But they're it's it, this is, they're not shallow from a sense of they're not not trying. I mean, you know, they're not. Let's get on to the next one. I think I've over I think I've overstayed the welcome on this one. Characters that are easily identifiable, and you know, a lot of these have large. A lot of these movies have large casts. Okay, but they want you to be able to look at the character just briefly. And you know exactly who that is in relationship to the story. Uh, hey, you know the character in one of these movies that wears a cowboy hat? I mean, th- that's just something that popped in my head. There's pro- well, now I'm seeing the Lone Ranger, and I'm like, well, are you talking about the Lone Ranger? It's like, no. But um, doesn't Owen Wilson in Armageddon wear a cowboy hat? There you go. Hey, you remember Owen Wilson was in Armageddon? Are you fucking kidding me? He was? Yeah, he's the guy in the cowboy hat. Oh, yeah. Like, there you go. Is he the, is he the ga- one with the game? Is he the horny one? No, that's Steve Buscemi. You know, cut another fucking amazing Ben Affleck. Oh my God, Harry, I love you. <laughs> oh, the fucking Ben Affleck, Don Simpson, reverse, Jerry Bruckheimer reverse alone is fucking just a great way to spend like five hours of your life. If it's, you know, if you're like isolated and locked in your home for reasons unspecified. I'm getting off topic, though. It's just it's easy to point out these characters. Hey, uh, when they're in the Jets. You ever noticed it fucking tells you on screen who you're looking at? Now, I'm not saying that to make fun of it. It's fucking genius. All right? Maverick, Goose, Iceman, Slider, Hollywood, Wolfman. Who am I missing? Merlin, Viper, uh, Jester. Ah, I did Hollywood Wolfman. Sundown. Um, Oh, I'm forgetting someone. It doesn't matter. Stinger. Well, Stinger actually never wears a helmet. You guys know who Stinger is? That's little Strickland from uh, Back to the Future, the bald guy. Um, his call sign is Stinger. I know from Wikipedia, looking up Top Gun on Wikipedia a while back. Um, but yeah, they're easily identifiable. I'm not, and you know, there are traits that can sometimes make them easily. It's the one with the accent. That's the guy, you know, who's, uh, you know, the orphan. Like, I mean, I'm just saying they they paint in very easily identifiable tropes here okay but again this gives them mass appeal to general audiences these are these are good things to have in common uh it knows your producers know what the fuck they're doing they usually also present uh films in a realistic way but definitely in a a realistic way that's extremely dramatic okay there's a unique detachment between what you're viewing and reality, but you really engage with the fact that it's quote unquote reality. Like you're seeing something that could happen. Now, obviously, when you get into like your um, late stage 
fantasy type stuff, your Prince of Persia's, your uh you know, Pirates of the Caribbean. I mean, we 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 changed, but films started changing in the 2000s. And that's when this production company changed. So go figure. I call it a pretty good move, even though I really don't like a lot of the movies that they did in those genres. And that's fine. So those are some of the things that, you know, they have in common in terms of, like, in the films themselves. Uh, that I saved my next favorite one because it, it's a little different. But, man, it just reminds me of a bygone era, okay, where... A promotional tie-in with a film felt a hell of a lot more special than it ever would now. Okay? And I'm looking at you like Sony Pictures. Any Sony any movie that Sony makes. Uh, Spider-Man. Amazing Spider-Man 2 in Times Square. Uh, Ghostbusters. Uh, Answer the Call in their Times Square. Like... Just ridiculous, and Times Square might not be the best example. I keep falling back on them, but just ridiculous product placement everywhere. A lot of times, it's their own shit too, and it's like, oh, there's a movie company promoting their own shit in their movie. That's kind of like a tacky way of doing it. Okay, back in the '90s and '80s, man, this shit wasn't tacky. It was war. Okay, there was a big difference between getting the toy and the Happy Meal. Versus having to settle to be like a collectible cup at Taco Bell. And I know that's like the most ridiculous, maybe even American statement you've ever heard someone make. And it, you know, is probably easy to ridicule and mock. But really think about it, though. Like, try to think about it objectively from a financial standpoint, a credibility standpoint. Um, Don't even mention you know, having the, the, you know, the box named after you at KFC, that's like your lowest level. Like, oh, maybe we should rethink our strategy guys. Or you kids really want to see this movie. I mean, it's being promoted at KFC. I mean, you know, let's go. What's, what do they got over at McDonald's? I mean, how do you reach a very general audience? Get in with McDonald's. You know, you're talking about 80s and 90s and advertising. This is not the modern era where you click everywhere and see everything and it's blowing in your face because you're supposed to because it fits the algorithm. This is casual interaction with society. And that's, you know, why this is important, this next one. Also makes a lot of fun to talk about because it's a nice, fun strip. Strip, I said. Oh, goodness. I'm going to stop chicken strips out of the brain. Get me to KFC. Um... But there's a unique relationship with like your own life or your history and your pop culture appreciation in this next list, okay? So, let's get into my favorite one. And probably, if you think about it, it's going to end up being your favorite one too. Maybe. Now I'm forcing my opinions upon you, so deal with it. Just kidding. Now these promotions we've talked about, they didn't just live or die by what products you could possibly get into your movie there's an entire genre of product placement that really rarely exists anymore at least in the form that we knew it and folks what i'm talking about can be summed up in a little montage that i've got for you and it goes a little something like this what a feel the hell she's a maniac maniac on the floor Highway to the danger zone Take my breath away 
I wanna make you a take me a honey and my tail wings, which is also the inspiration for the Ken stage in Street Fighter 2. Mighty Wings by Cheap Trick from Top Gun is Ken. Uh, this part doesn't have a song. They also told uh, the Don Simpson, Jerry Bruckheimer, Bruckheimer cinematic universe told me and taught me what Mellow Yellow is. And I don't want somebody who's loving everybody. The shy guy is the kind of guy that's been spending most his life living in the gangster's paradise. How do I live without you when I don't want to miss a thing? Can't fight the moonlight, baby. You're the right kind of wrong. Man, that right kind of wrong was really flatty and shitty, and I can't sing to begin with. And I'm sorry that I put you all through that. But yeah, we're talking about the hit theme song soundtrack promotional tie-in. And I gotta tell you what, I haven't really listened to this new Lady Gaga Hold My Hand song from Top Gun Maverick yet, because I kind of want to be exposed to it in the film to see like thematically what it contributes. Because um, no one can deny that to take my breath away does contribute. I mean, the Top Gun soundtrack, like every song this shows, you know, contributes to the overall narrative in some way. Hi, playing with the boys. Hey, if you could spin a volleyball like Slider, you're cool. Um, Yeah, I don't even... But yeah, like all the things I mentioned. Uh, you got your Flashdance music, your Beverly Hills Cop music. Gangster's Paradise, for God's sakes. Needless to say, God, I, I, I mean, I don't want to shortchange that. I mean, maybe it was just the age, but I know that shit made a lot of money for the people involved, okay? And it made Dangerous Minds a hit, literally. Now, I'm not here to critique the film Dangerous Minds. I honestly haven't seen it since I was fucking 95. I would have been 12, so probably 13, 14. Like, I haven't seen it since I was a teenager, a young teenager. So I, don't, I can't comment on that. But I can tell you that I own the Dangerous Mind soundtrack. I could tell you that my fucking eighth grade art teacher uh, used to sing uh, the fucking Ho song from Dangerous Minds and had no idea what it was in class, and we were all amused by it. The one where like, and I ain't your ho. But hey, she just knew the Dangerous Mind soundtrack because she's a fucking teacher. Maybe she thought. I, it, regardless, I'm not trying to mock this woman. But my point is, is that 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 soundtrack literally made that movie uh, a hit. I don't want to miss the thing from fucking Armageddon. Are you serious? Hey, did you take a date to see Armageddon? And hey, did you cry? And hey, did you hide it from them? I mean, seriously. Um, you know, the, I know the songs from Coyote Ugly aren't as big, but maybe it's just because I saw that movie like 75 billion times um, that I got used to it. You know what I mean? So... It, it, the the subtle art of integrating a music tie-in to film does still exist. You see it a lot with children's movies and stuff like that. But since we aren't really buying physical media anymore, it's very difficult to go out here and say that you know it's contributed as much as something like Gangster's Paradise does. But I do think it's an important trope that is relevant to this cinematic universe conversation. I mean, it doesn't end with just popular music. The Don Simpson, Jerry Bruckheimer Cinematic Universe is known for having really fantastic film scores. Now, these are very memorable, hummable tunes. Now, 
am I going to sit here and say that like hummable is the uh, is the pedest is is the you know the thing that makes something great art? I mean, no. Okay, that I, I know there's more to it than that, and I don't. I'm not studied music. I'm not a musician, and I I don't want to oversimplify the study of music and the analysis of it. But to me, if you could see, uh, how should I put this? I would imagine you have seen a hundred different hype videos, promo videos, some sort of sports NBA playoffs montage that was probably set to some of the score of some of these Simpson Brookheimer movies, especially, especially Crimson Tide. I know you have. I, you know, I, well, okay. I, I, I hate dealing in absolutes because so, I'm not the Sith, but my point is, is that I, I, I can almost guarantee that you've heard it. Uh, the Rock, Armageddon, you know, amazing score. Well, I don't know what amazing, but they, they, they hire amazing composers. You've got a lot of early, early Hans Zimmer, and then later Hans Zimmer. Uh, if you're not familiar with Hans Zimmer, he's responsible for like uh, the, the Nolan Batman movies, uh, Batman v Superman, Man of Steel. Like he's the architect of like the modern DC film music. Him and uh, Junkie XL. I mean, there are others. Um, you know, who else have we got here? Oh, the gentleman whose name's escaping me that did the uh, Top Gun anthem and the entire Top Gun score. That uh, fucking score is amazing. And there are just commonalities and feelings that cross over. I believe Remember the Titans actually has a memorable score, aside from incorporating like relevant hit songs from the time. So it's just, it's music you can tap your foot to, music you can hum along with, uh, music you can sing along with. It's a massive part of filmmaking, especially in these blockbuster films. And I don't want that to get overlooked along the way. I don't want to overharp on it, like I said, because I don't feel that I'm an expert, okay, and can provide analysis of that nature. But it's something that I always lean to when I watch these types of movies. And honestly, it's the type of music that I enjoy listening to just for personal personal enjoyment, so maybe I'm a little biased. But uh, we've got this, the score for Top Gun Maverick apparently is a collaboration between, I should have written the gentleman's name down, I apologize for not... I don't know if there's I don't know if it's a contribution or if they're just using his original music and therefore he's credited and it seems like Lady Gaga's getting credit for the score not just the theme so it's possible that the hold my hand like music of it is incorporated into the theme but I and, and you know I guess you consider this a spoiler a minor like super light spoiler but I've seen the soundtrack listing and the Top Gun anthem is included on the Top Gun Maverick score which, I mean, come on. I, I gave you a little sampling of it up front. Uh, I played the Top Gun Anthem from the NES video game. So yeah, it's a chiptune version. But even in chiptune version, the emotion resonates. That's, I mean, that's a specific reason that I went with the chiptune version or the video game NES Nintendo version for the introduction. Because I wanted to show how iconic it is. It's recognizable in many forms and would argue it carries that punch because of the decades worth of mimetic legacy that it's passed on amongst our society. And yeah, I said mimetic legacy, but I think it's appropriate here. You know, it's incorporated into us and then we pass it along and then it gets passed along and, you know... I think that's an amazing concept. You know, as long as we're not passing around hateful, awful things, let's pass around fun things like 
you know, you're sitting there making uh, your your kids breakfast, you know, and you start humming and like, what's that? Oh, that's this old movie I used to watch. Well, what is it? Oh, it's called Top Gun. What's it about? I uh, fighter pilots. What's that? It, really? Is it good? Yeah, it's good. Next thing you know, you come home from a day at work and your kids watching Top Gun on Paramount Plus, and it just will continue and continue. That is how our society. Well, now now I'm some sort of fucking expert in human, uh, you know, human culture in our, you know, how, how culture is passed on from generation to generation. I'm not, okay? I'm not. But I did end up finding a tape. There was a couple of movies taped off of HBO. Rambo 3 was first. No, I'm sorry. Rambo 3 was second on this tape. Top Gun was first. I wasn't allowed to watch Rambo 3 at the time because I was probably like five. And honestly, Rambo 3 sucks. Rambo 2 is okay because it's like an exploitation film. First Blood fucking bring you to tears every time. So it's a very hard-hitting depiction of that time in American history and would argue a lot of times in American history. But now, join me next week for the First Blood trilogy. Guys, it's a five-set movie now? Four? Fuck, I don't care. Anyway... Music is a part of this cinematic universe. I'm excited to see how it gets incorporated into Maverick. I don't want to spend too much more time on this section. I appreciate the uh, little personal indulgences that I was allowed to get in. I think it's time to talk about the requel nature of this project. Now, if you're not familiar with what a requel is, it is a term uh, that I'm sure was coined somewhere sometime. I first heard it in Scream 5, which is ironically just called Scream. Uh, And it is a terminology for a reboot sequel um scream 5 is a great example of a really good one jurassic world to a lesser extent because one of the key core elements is you have to bring back original cast i know there was i think bd wong came back for jurassic world uh this new jurassic world that's coming out that i'll hopefully maybe chat about with you later this summer is a massive re requel offender because you've got the casts from the world series and the Park series coming together for like a massive whatever. The other big requel that pops to mind, The Force Awakens, although I I will, you're never going to hear me say an unkind thing about The Force Awakens. I know it's extremely derivative of A New Hope, but God damn it, when you're the best movie of all time, why not be derivative? But let's specifically focus on Top Gun and what being a Top Gun requel means in 2022. How will it feel to be with Maverick in 2022? He's kind of a... I mean, does Maverick really work in 2022? And I'm not even talking about the fact that it's a it was a different time in so many, many, many different ways. But sort of the... If it's really 36 years later, should he have changed a little bit? Or are we okay with him not changing? One of the most egregious examples I want to give of a requel character, I don't necessarily think it falls into a requel trap, but I'm using it anyway because it's too fucking good. Take Indiana Jones. One, two, or three. All worth your time, your effort, your money. Take Indiana Jones number four. A sequel which was made way after the after the last whatever which is a requel trope and holy shit indiana jones should not have been fighting 
the was he fighting the Soviets? I can't remember. He should always be, if there's no Nazis, I don't want an in, in Indiana Jones movie. I'm sorry. I'm not. No, I'm not saying this to promote. For God's sakes, I'm just saying that that's that's the time period. You know, I know Temple of Doom is a prequel and it is my favorite one, so I guess I'll let that slide a little bit. But I don't want to see Indiana Jones in the fucking space race. Okay. It just doesn't work. So, will Maverick work? Not in the 80s, okay? And like most requels, it's basically a backdoor pilot for the next sequel, okay? It's going to be Top Gun, the next generation. Bringing back specific tie-ins to plot points from the first movie is also another egregious offense. Top Gun Maverick, guilty. I guess if you've not seen any trailers, you'll consider this a spoiler. But three, two, one, we've got Rooster, the son of Goose. Played by Mr. Fantastic himself, Miles Teller. I am interested to see what this... I almost want to call him a kid, but he's fucking not a kid anymore. I mean, I guess I'm almost 40, so he might be. But, you know, and I'm going to go on record. He could be a good Mr. Fantastic still. Fan Four Stick or Fantastic Four. I know it's kind of jokingly called Fan Four Stick. Um... I don't want to defend it, but some of the body horror stuff is really good. I would like to see, I'm going on the record, if there was a two-hour and like 15-minute fan four-stick director's cut, but the only way you could watch it was to pay like $20 to a streaming service to, to own it. You know, you can't just buy a ticket or watch it on HBO Max. I'd do it. I would absolutely do it, and I'd watch it immediately because I'd be curious to see what it looked like. And, uh, you know, so that's Miles Teller's. But we've got, you know... More new pilots, a younger generation of pilots, okay? And look, there's a very real threat here that the people in the cinema who think it's still 1986 will complain about wokeness. Because I'll tell you what, guys. See, I even said I'll tell you what, guys, but it's just a, a, a non sequitur, okay? I'll tell you what, folks out there, guess what? One of these pilots in Top Gun, Maverick, guess what? No dick. That's right. We've got a lady pilot. Can you believe it? You fucking woke ass movie. Well, guess what? Let's say there's eight pilots. One of them's a woman. Is that like I don't I don't understand. Like I mean, obviously I'm on the side of just representation of like reality. So uh, and I don't and I'm not trying to get into a thing. It just feeds into the Top Gun is very 1986, and right now it's very 2022. Whatever that means to you. It probably means this either won't age well or you'll be pissed off that it's not like the old one. And that's a real threat with any of these requels. It just so happens to really have, in my opinion, a unique edge going in. Now, I don't think Top Gun is some sort of egregious film. As a matter of fact, I love the 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 reanalysis of Top Gun as a film that speaks to the gay community. I love it. I think it's fantastic. I it was actually kind of funny. My dad had never heard this was like maybe three or four years ago and this isn't to paint a negative picture of my father just that we were sitting around and it was some family gathering and you know it was winding down and we turned on hbo or something and top gun was just starting and i casually made the comment that i haven't um i hadn't watched it in years and i wanted to to see all of the sort of uh symbolism you know that would support the community and, or just the read of it, or what if, if you will, you know, to call on to Marvel and stuff like that. And he was like, I've never heard that before. And I was like, well, let's give it 10 minutes. And within 10 minutes, we were both like, wow, 
if you're if that if you if that's an interpretation, like it's totally there, and actually it's kind of fun. Um, not because something like that is funny, but I think that if the intent wasn't there, but it is there, it's kind of like oh, you know. So this was it wasn't the intent, but it was a, a, a you know it was a natural part of uh, what was captured, and I think that when art could be multiple things and multiple layers it's pretty impressive so you know i i get a kick out of it because i i don't necessarily know if it was intended it's not like a nightmare on elm street 2 where the writer i believe has uh sort of taken us aback or taken us back to that time frame and said yeah it was absolutely intended uh it's sort of the same thing that it's a an allegory for like a coming out story um so and, and if and i love that because it's if it could be beneficial to someone or if it makes that art better. I mean, it is a Nightmare on Elm Street 2, okay? <laughs> Either way you're looking at it, it's not. It's probably one of the worst Nightmare on Elm Street movies, but it's it's a standout for its... It's a different podcast. Um, but yeah, so we're, it's a culture clash. That's the whole point. Can modern-day production mimic the old-school Don Simpson, Jerry Bruckheimer production? I don't know. We know that it's mostly, if not all, practical effects, but if there is any CGI, I've got a bad feeling it's going to stand out like a sore thumb. Soundtrack we kind of already talked about. We're doing the anthem theme again, and we've got Hans Zimmer in here, and he always usually delivers something special. Now, will this movie be quotable? Now, how does one define quotable? Man, it's another part of the legacy of Top Gun being ingrained into a lot of our just pop culture DNA. I mean, how many fucking quotes from this movie are there? And most of them, if not all, are a joy to say, especially without proper context. Jesus, I mean, like, uh, off the top of my head, we've got, uh, I feel the need, the need for speed. Jester's dead. I've said Jester's dead to people without any sort of context. You know, if you fucking, if I grab the last hamburger before you can, I'll be like, Jester's dead. You know, negative Ghost Rider, the pattern is full. I've said that a thousand times. I've said, Greetings to people without flipping them off before and then i've said you know the finger when flipping people off uh to pr- to prove my superiority to people i have said no no there's two o's in goose and there's no context to it you know and someone's like oh we made a list uh you know uh, you know john you know you're the fourth best salesperson of the year you know i'm like oh no there's two o's in goose that's a terrible example but that's the sort of context i'm representing uh insert name here you big stud take me to bed or lose me forever i mean it's usually said to me uh no but it's still it's there uh i've said slider you stink to my cat before she'll come up and meow me and like you know like if i'm sleeping and like with her cat breath and i'll be like slider you know because i'm asleep slider you stink my cat's name is not slider by the way it's siri so, yeah. I've said, that's right, ice man to people when I wanted to be a dick. And sometimes when I get really confused, I'll say, and then Hollywood said, where'd who go? I mean, there's, I mean, is there any possible way that it can live up to the fun that Top Gun has given us over the years? Or could it, I mean, I would love for it to. I think it'd be fantastic. And yes, quotable stuff, you know, being able to be quotable is silly. But, I mean, will this generation, because I think that I'm maybe a little too old at this point, 
And I don't find myself in the types of scenarios where I'm actively speaking to people about film and stuff like that. Or, you know, you know, I'm not as young as I used to be. So, you know, yelling, there's two O's and goose, like to the guy that owns my company might not be a good idea. So it's probably not happening. Um, But I would shit 20 years from now, I would love to hear somebody yell, some kid yell something or my kid, maybe like to be like 25 or something and have them yell something that I'm like, Oh, that's from Top Gun Maverick. Wow. Did that really catch on? I guess it would be memes now. That's how you'll know if it becomes culturally relevant, but it's an exciting part of being a requel. You know, that's more the fun side of it. There are so many things to live up to. There are so many different angles to come at it to see if it still feels like that movie we loved. It's a little goofy. It's definitely not the most serious part of my presentation, but maybe that's why Top Gun is so memorable and this whole cinematic universe is because it knew how to have fun. Will Top Gun Maverick have fun? Trailers look like it. The scene that I saw in IMAX looked like it. I'm excited too. I've got one last piece I want to deliver to talk about how this could be a scenario where it's uh, much like the WWE in today's product, comparable to like with Top Gun feeling very unique and of its time, just like professional wrestling did in the 80s, whereas to now it's kind of a stale corporate feel. Let's get into that and see if we might already have the answers as to whether or not Top Gun Maverick can possibly live up to an amazing 80s legacy. Oh, and just as a side note, before we go on to the wrestling-based conversation, I need to know if, like myself, anyone out there has ever actually gone through with the you lost that love and feeling challenge. So when I was in college and rushing a fraternity, I was asked in a I don't want to call it a formal restaurant. We were like at a sit-down restaurant. We were with kind of a large group. It was definitely later in the evening, so it kind of had a bar-type feeling to it. But there were still some like families and random people having dinner. It wasn't like a TGI Fridays. I don't remember what it was. It was. It was. A, it stands out as a weird setting to me, though. Anywho, I was asked to perform as Maverick and sing "You Lost That Love and Feeling." to some ladies in the restaurant that I did not know or have any prior affiliation with. Now, before you can say holy fraternity hazing Batman, I would like to point out that this was not forced upon me, and it's not as if you had to twist my arm really hard to try to get the attention of a room full of people, as I'm sure it's very difficult for you all to imagine. But at the end of the day, I thought it went pretty well, all things considered, because I got audience clap along. And in the middle of a crowded restaurant, I think that's all you can really ask for. And I should probably note, I believe this was a day or two pre-9-11, but that still makes it pre-9-11, which I don't say to joke about, but, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, we got like pre-9-11 marker and then pre-COVID marker in my lifetime so far. So uh, it's just something that, that stood out to me. I mean, you know, obviously nowadays I wouldn't recommend doing something like that just because it's... Actually, I wouldn't recommend doing it at all. Moving on. Let's talk about how the 80s presentation of Top Gun as a film and its characters and what it's trying to say is a lot like the WWF of the time. 
So you want to talk about colorful characters, these things have both of them in spades. Not only just how the colors of the... But this is important to point out too. We talk about the pilot helmets and how it was literally identifying these characters every time they're on screen. It's a brilliant move. But they're also color-coded to a certain extent as well. They also have the various symbols on the sides of the helmet. You know, if Maverick... If, if you were to be in Maverick's uh, cockpit and you didn't see his face, and let's just say for argument's sake... You didn't even you couldn't even tell what color it was. Say you're very colorblind like I am. You can see that like Maverick Eagle type symbol if his head's turned. You know it's not Iceman because Iceman's helmet doesn't have that on the side. He's not identified that way. I think is Sundown the only one that has a red one. Again, very colorblind, but I, you know that stands out very much as well too. So and these are good things. Do not get me wrong. They endure for generations. I mean they can. Is it as important as that they endure for generations as like? I don't know, great literature or... That's not the point. My point is is that it is able to exist in your mind because it's colorful. It's very much something that stands out, just like these colorful characters in professional wrestling is what I'm getting at. Hulk Hogan, the red and yellow. Um, Roddy Roddy Piper with the kilt pattern. Uh, The Undertaker, well, that's not as 80s. You know, Maybe the Million Dollar Man with this green tuxedo. Andre the Giant... With, or demolition maybe with their, you know, they, they very much stand out is the point that I'm getting at. Back in the day, they even had their little symbols, like the Ultimate Warrior, for example, uh, when they would stand in front of the backdrop and do their interviews. I mean, look, it's not exactly the same, but it's a presentation aimed to be memorable and sort of replicatable, but perhaps in different manners. So the Ultimate Warrior, like I said, has his symbol. We have the basis now. It's going to get changed up. We'll have different color versions and stuff, all different very things we can sell. And, you know, Top Gun isn't as merchandise heavy as like a professional wrestling, but creating colorful characters is key. And that was alliteration I didn't plan on, and it's what have you. Uh, We're also dealing with sort of one-note characters, but these characters are definitely individuals, and this applies to both the film and to professional wrestling. Hulk Hogan, a very one-note character, very much like a virtuous type good guy. Say your prayers, take your vitamins. Uh, say your prayers, take your vitamins. Oh, train. Yikes, God, you think I'm... I'm a little bit past my prime as a Hulkamaniac, brother. But, yeah, so... And again, I mentioned the Ultimate Warrior. Uh, yells about the power of the Warriors. The main dollar man's the rich bad guy. That's it. He tries to buy people. Uh, Roddy Piper's the asshole. Ravishing Rick Rude thinks he's the sexiest guy on Earth. Um... The Red Rooster believes he is a rooster. Okay, that that's not very fair. The Big Boss Man's a former prison guard, and he, you know, acts like a cop. He actually acts like a cop from the modern era more than he acts like a cop from the 80s, but that is aside from the point. These are one-note characters, but they're individuals, and that makes them very memorable. Maverick's the risky guy. Goose is the straight man, which is kind of funny to say in uh, Top Gun because he's the only one that's married. <laughs> To a, to a woman, that is, uh, which, of course, in the 80s was just a thing. And um, so he's sort of absolved not only as the straight man in the in the shenanigans that are afoot, but he's also the straight man in the gay reading of the film. And I love it, and I love that that just came to me. And uh, I can't wait to rewatch it because, uh, I have, again, I haven't watched it in quite some time. Um, these characters are individuals. Uh, Iceman is the dick. Slider's the jock. Uh Hollywood and Wolfman are the lovers, regardless of which interpretation you choose. They're clearly an item, and I don't care what else anybody else says. Uh, Cougar is the uh, the disgraced 
you know, well, he's not disgraced, but he's the, you know, he can't hang. He gives it all up. I guess he's the Bret Hart of this presentation, if you want to talk about wrestling. And not only that, um, something that does stand out to me, you know, I was doing some research in the Top Gun, and I was trying to think to myself, man, who do they end up getting into conflict with in this movie? Because there are scenes between the MiGs uh, and the the naval aviators in their whatever jets they're in. I'm not a big jet guy. Um, <laughs> hey, you want to do some jet stuff? But uh, I do enjoy Jet's Pizza, ironically enough, but I'm not a big jet guy. But I never really knew that MiGs were Russian uh, planes because I did a little research on MiGs because I was like, Does that, is that an acronym? Is it stand for something? And, um, you know, I guess it's a Russian type of plane. But the villains, in quotation marks in the film, or the pilots, the MiGs they come to contact with are identified by that kind of star iconography on their uh, tail fins. And again, it's just kind of like, well, this is evil and this is as deep as it's going to get. Kind of like evil in wrestling. Like the main dollar man wears the dollar sign on the back of his jacket. And even though we all want money, you know, we know that he's an evil guy. So it's easily identifiable. Bada bing, bada boom. It, it, it writes itself. Now in the 2022s or the 2020s, um, blockbusters have more of a cut and paste presentation they're not as colorful and individualized as if you think about like marvel and i'm not trying to critique that film those films are that brand but some of them do feel very much put together in, in or in non-organic ways i know that there's a marvel film that was recently released and just in, and i'm not going to get into spoilers so don't worry about that but there is a very pivotal scene that people who have seen it will know where uh very headline items occur and it's come out that those actors have never even met because they were never even the same room at the same time and the second go around and even the first you can really tell that it's a very cut together presentation and that kind of feels like wrestling is today now um i don't know what show i'm ever looking at because they all look the same rinse and repeat cut and paste and it's the same with the characters they don't really stand out as individuals now i feel like the way that that could negatively compare to top gun maverick which i haven't seen yet and i don't want to be unfair or biased towards before but i feel like a lot of big budget films because they're usually the product of a couple of scripts or maybe a polish or what have you the characters don't really seem to stand out as individuals because they're sort of put together piecemeal, um, kind of like the characters in WWE do right now. I mean, a lot of characters are named after, the, you know, they just have real names. Now, I don't have a problem with this. This is not meant as criticism. This is simply meant as observational and how the entertainment and how the brand is presented now. It's a little clear-cut good and evil back to that, whereas sort of when I was growing up, it was a little more shades of gray, which you can insert wrestling joke here. But, you know, we're definitely back to that presentation, so it does mirror it in that sense. But, you know, these characters don't really stand out. It's not like, um, you know, I'm not picking on Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn, okay? But those are just names. It's not mach- the Macho Man. It's not... Um, Ravishing, well, I mean, Rick Rude's a name, but Ravishing Rick Rude, Mr. Perfect, The Hitman, Bret Hart, Yokozuna, those are all 90s, so I'm kind of going against the point, Hillbilly Jim, The Junkyard Dog, um, Nikolai Volkov in the Iron Sheik, now I'm just naming rock and wrestling characters, but they definitely stand out as they are character first, real person later, kind of just like, you know, Iceman's just a dick, 
He shows personality, and I'm not critiquing Val Kilmer's performance. I think he's great. Actually, Iceman is the best Bruce Wayne Val Kilmer ever ever played. You want to have that conversation? We can. Hit me up on Twitter at the Johnny C. Uh, you know, because Bruce Wayne's supposed to have that persona that he has out in public. Well, fuck, that's Iceman. It's perfect. Um, where were you <laughs> on the set in 1994, Iceman? We could have used you. Batman Forever and whatnot. But it is sort of a... It's a less bright presentation from a sense of we're dealing with these characters that are very easy to recognize just from a glance and it's difficult to understand what they stand for at a glance you know if you put and i'm not saying this is right or wrong especially because it deals with nationalism issues uh whether whatever your country might be but hear me out okay so if i've got 1987 hulk hogan coming down to the ring and staring across from the iron sheik okay I can look at those two and I can understand what the story is and, you know, good, evil. Now, I'm not saying that just because the chic characters are Iranian is evil, please. But I'm trying to get that 80s mindset of like, well, Hulk Hogan's here. He's a big, muscly, good guy. Like, uh, you know, the action heroes and they're going to take down the foreign adversary. Whereas now, let's say you have uh, Cody Rhodes standing across the ring from Seth Rollins or let's say Kevin Owens, okay? Because... Rollins kind of wears those insane outfits, which make him look like more of a villain. So you've got a gentleman in his shirt and a gentleman in his wrestling pants, like, you know, being Cody and Kevin. And I know that Kevin's sort of a bigger bruiser guy, but Cody can also, like, kind of wear the suits and play that, like, arrogant character if he wants to. But who's the villain? Who's the hero? And what do they stand for and represent? I don't know at first glance because it's 2022 presentation, not the 80s presentation. And how this all fits in is, what are they going to give us in Maverick? It would, I'm hoping for a very cool hybrid of both. For example, the pilot Phoenix in Top Gun Maverick. This is not a spoiler. I just saw her character poster the other day. And, and here's the thing. It's Phoenix, and it's a female character. So it stands out to me for two reasons. One, Phoenix and female reminds me of Jean Grey and X-Men. And number two, she stands out to me because she is the female pilot in Top Gun Maverick where there were no female pilots in Top Gun, the first one. Now, I'm hoping that it doesn't end. Like, I love that she's easily identifiable to me. Take the female aspect out of it. Phoenix and the hair, all right? It reminds me of Jean Grey. Now, um, She'll probably be a very more complex, layered, and interesting character, hopefully. Uh, there's a character called Hangman. I don't know shit about him. I'm assuming he's probably a dick because he looks very pretty, and his name is Hangman. But I'm sure we'll probably get into it. You know, maybe they call him Hangman because his daddy was the sheriff in town, and he was a dick, and he wanted to be good to people, but he's the character who's an ass to Maverick. I don't know. I'm making all this up. But I'm sure there will be a bit more to it than just sliders the muscle guy that yells at everybody and that could be a good thing but please don't overthink it though and 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 not make these people interesting you can go too far because we're dealing with top gun maverick this is not a character dramatization but it needs to be the 80s presentation upgraded for a modern audience and i know that um wrestling has uh updated itself and the presentation is amazing. You can watch it anytime you want. There are very good things to being a wrestling fan in 2022. I don't want to criticize that. That's not even what this is about. This is a film analysis, and it's just a fun comparison. So that's sort of how I feel the, the wrestling tie-in comes into play. And given 
that piece of information being shared with you, I think we're ready to put this preview to bed and then watch Top Gun Maverick in IMAX in the exact same chair that I watched The Batman and that I watched Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. So I'm kind of getting my gimmick going on in my real life, if you want to compare it to wrestling. I go to the same theater for these reviews. I end up picking the same exact seat and I'll give you a review and analysis and how it compared to my points of presentation after I see the film. We're going to have a brief musical interlude, and then I want you to come on back where it is going to be the danger zone. The, uh, you'll be in spoiler lock, as opposed to missile lock, I suppose. And they're going to come at you, that being the spoilers. They're going to come right at your face very quickly and dangerously, just like a volleyball. Let's head over to Spoiler Town, USA. You know, like Fighter Town, USA. I, I got to send you spoilers to Miramar. I got to send you spoilers to Top Gun. I'll see you guys over on the other side. thought that after all these years and all this conflict and everything that's happened between these two great nations who would have thought that the United States of America and the black background red star country would still be at each other's throats after all this time all praise be given to the intellectual minds behind Top Gun Maverick for bringing back the Red Star country as the villains. That is an extra step that I didn't think they would take, and by God, they did. So welcome to the spoiler-filled portion of the Top Gun Maverick discussion. A lot of times when I'm editing my shows together, I sometimes reflect back and think, did I maybe give information overload? Did I maybe take it too far or did I dive too deep? Because I know that um, when it comes to film especially, I take things a little too far and a little too seriously uh, from a background perspective in terms of a lot of times when I watch a movie, I can't help but think of everything that what I'm looking at means, not from a narrative standpoint, but from like a real world standpoint. And holy shit, I am so happy that I reflected upon the Don Simpson, Jerry Bruckheimer cinematic universe. Because what we have here is a film that I will say off top was pretty good, honestly. I don't really have bad things to say about it because I think the movie tells you from the get-go what you're about to get. Meaning that the opening sequence, even though it has nothing to do with the aircraft carrier that the individuals are on, is almost 
It's a concept. It's a conceptual remake of the Top Gun opening credits. We even get the same scroll at the very beginning with the exact same words that transition into the Top Gun logo that freezes for as long as it can before it says the word Maverick to let you know that it's the sequel. Trying really hard to grab you by the nostalgia and and beg you to come along for the ride. We then get the fun uh, folks on the deck sending the jets off to highway to the danger zone. My God, it's it really sets the tone for what we get. And what we have here, folks, is a tale of two movies. It's a decent enough reflection of who and what within us changes and how we reflect upon our personal journeys. And it mixes that with a goddamn 80s movie that has been released here in 2022. And I think that sometimes the tone shifts are a little jarring, but at the end of the day, because of the whole presentation, I'd say it's a good enough movie. All right? So let's get into why I'm glad that I brought up the Don Simpson, Jerry Bruckheimer universe. So as I said just now, it's it's a tale of two films, really. We get some pretty decent... Maverick. It's it's kind of like there's a movie here about Maverick, and then you slice it down the middle, and when we're not dealing with Maverick's personal journey or reflection, we are literally just in a hybrid of so many different Don Simpson, Jerry Bruckheimer productions that I would almost call it plagiarism, but folks, you can't plagiarize yourself. And and yes, plagiarism sounds very very mean. It sounds very accusatory. And I don't necessarily think that it was done in a way to be, uh, to, to, to come across in a negative way. I think it's just what you have to do basically to make the kind of film that was going to make it feel like the old Top Gun. So, so maybe I should stop beating around the bush. All right. So in this film, <clears throat> a job has to be accomplished. There's a mission at hand. And there's only one crazy idea to accomplish this mission. It's probably a no-win scenario, but if it succeeds, it helps the greater good. And of course, I'm talking about blowing up the Red Star military base that holds the, uh, the nuclear material, uh, uranium, I think it was. Um, but the only way to get this crazy plan into motion is to find a crazy, unconventional guy that can bring it all together and get the team to work as one. If it sounds like Armageddon, it is. Bruce Willis is a crazy, unconventional guy. I mean, he's an oil driller, for goodness sakes, and we need him to be an astronaut. And he's got a crazy team that he's got to bring together. It's Armageddon. Not, and then we spend... So so that's one film that they're aping. <clears throat> Excuse me, in quotation marks. And Maverick is the unconventional person. And he has to teach this group that just don't want to listen to anything he has to say. And don't want to give him the benefit of the doubt. But over the course of the film, they slowly learn to trust their teacher 
they slowly learn that their teacher has the best intentions for them. And this teacher can not only teach them a few things about dogfighting, but also about who they really are inside. Holy shit! That's just dangerous minds. Now we've got some drama in the skies as well. We've got two pilots who are constantly at one another's throats. Not for the purpose of good-hearted competition. Or they don't, you know, it's not an Iceman Maverick situation. It's a deep-rooted drama that revolves around complex emotions like love and guilt and anger. Well, holy shit! That's just Pearl Harbor with Ben Affleck and Josh Hartnett eventually becoming at odds with one another over the love of Kate Beckinsale. I suppose I don't blame them for that. And then, and of course we're in spoilers here, guys, we've got a, I don't want to call Jennifer Conley, and first of all, holy shit, Jennifer Conley really bringing it in a thankless role. Really, really grounding this thing uh, as a pretty cool bar owner, Penny Benjamin. But wouldn't you know it, she's a single woman who's probably in her mid-40s, who owns a cool bar. Well, holy shit, that's just Coyote Ugly. And then, at the very end, when Maverick and Rooster uh, suddenly become best buddies and team up, we find ourselves in in a wacky partners scenario, and it's just bad boys. But like I said... You can't sue yourself. Now, I do think those are those are humorous observations uh, delivered in a comedic fashion to get the point across. But I do think that that's going to set the tone for when we get into the 80s film side of this conversation. But like I said, Tale of Two Movies, let's deal with the grown-up Maverick movie first. You know, when this movie starts, I'm getting some real serious... Hal Jordan vibes, and that's probably a good thing for me. Now, Hal Jordan is one of the Green Lantern characters from DC Comics, who was a test pilot. He is a he's known for being like a hot shot test. <laughs> Side note: probably shouldn't have watched Hot Shots before this too, because when they started doing the opening scene, that's basically a remake of the Top Gun opening credits in Maverick. I kept waiting for a dude to be cooking hot dogs off these jets. I mean, it's it's almost parody level because it's the exact same thing. But like I said, Hal Jordan's a hotshot pilot that lives on the edge and does whatever is necessary to get the job done. He doesn't live within the rules. He's a bit of a maverick, and he came first. So don't be telling me that Hal Jordan is a rip-off rip off of Maverick. But this Dark Star program, I think is what it was called, is an interesting and is interesting enough to, to show us what Maverick has been up to in the in the modern days. And as he's flying this thing, it it, it does a couple of things for us tonally. It sets the tone that we're in the future. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I don't mean like the future future, like the year three thousand or something silly like that. This shows us right from the get-go and gets us settled in for the fact that we're going to have to do some mental gymnastics in a sense that we are not used to seeing Maverick uh, with a cell phone, for example. Maverick with a cell phone is a mind-blower. That's what happens in these requels when you you know, bring, especially requels that are set in on like 
you know, that are based in reality in quotation marks, you know, a Star Wars requel doesn't count because, you know, Ray, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't get the point across. But Maverick with a cell phone's crazy. Maverick in this new technology lets us know that we're entering a new realm here. This, the story that's going to be told is not like what we're used to, and I think it's good to set that immediately. I also... One thing that I, that really gets uh, a check in the plus column for me on this Maverick storyline is I kind of feel like he's looking for something worth dying for. I know I talked about this in the Batman, so I already feel like, geez, what's wrong with you, Johnny? See, you, you see, you're seeing the same things in these characters. But I think what the point they're trying to get across is that Maverick, over time, has learned that the mission is important, and his mission here is to break to Mach 10, exactly, and not go any further. But he's also doing this, and he says that he wants to accomplish his initial first mission to help everyone who's involved with the mission. You know, the technicians, the janitor, his best buddy guy, whose call sign escapes me, Hondo, I think, or Honda, Hondo, I think it is. And I was getting some real uh, serious uh, Festos vibes from Eternals uh, off of that gentleman. I know it's not Brian Tyree Hill, and it probably is elevated by the fact that I saw another trailer for Bullet Train, which, holy shit, is just the big hit. Uh, Both Columbia film, Columbia TriStar Sony films, both use a version of Staying Alive in the trailer. The the old big hit from the 90s used that Fuji's Wyclef Jean. It wasn't the Fuji's, just Wyclef Solo. you know, trying to stay alive or whatever song. And Bullet Train uses all the different language versions of it. I'm way off the rails here, just like the Bullet Train itself. But it seems as if Maverick is looking to pay the penance for his past life, if that makes sense. He's still a little rough around the edges, but I think he's looking for the right sacrifice play to make in order to find peace with his past. And I thought that was kind of interesting. The flip side of that is that there's also some interesting thoughts presented to the audience about personal happiness versus personal gain. The Maverick character is very aware of his lot in life and what makes him happy, what makes him comfortable, etc., etc. And so that was a pretty interesting take. It's very un-80s. Um, which I think is a nice way to pivot things into the modern era because Maverick doesn't accept promotions. He doesn't want to sit behind a desk, which is sort of another easy film convention. You're not going to put me behind a desk. I belong out there on the streets. I'm a street cop, damn it. I don't want to be a captain. And, you know, versus the the, the power, money-hungry 80s you know settings that we're used to where climb that ladder get to the top get to the top get all the power that you can because that's what's going to make you happy maverick knows that the cockpit is what makes him happy kind of had a slightly and that gave it a, a little meta feel because it made me realize that the film is differentiating the tone not only of its character but the tone of its era i enjoyed getting the background information in the in the maverick portion that he served in all the armed conflicts that the United States was involved in in the real world. I thought that added a nice layer of quote-unquote realism to the proceedings. Although the initial 
black background red star conflict was unlisted. It must be classified. But he does have the kill count on his belt. So maybe somewhere someone knows what that initial conflict was all about. Now because this is a requel, we have to deal with some of my most aggravating personal pet peeves when it comes to film. Alright? I hate, hate, hate when movies use publicity still photos from the first movie and just pass it off as real-world pictures. The Dark Knight trilogy is even an offender of this. I think Bruce Wayne has a picture of Maggie Gyllenhaal in his back cave or his office or whatever that is her in the restaurant that she was in with Harvey Dent when Bruce Wayne showed up with a, a model lady and they talked about you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain or something like that. That's just the picture that he has of Maggie Gyllenhaal. And it's like, God damn it! that's just a fucking frame grab from the movie. Because Maverick has all these pictures of the old Top Gun gang and Goose. Uh, and it's just like, that's just a publicity fil- photo, man. That's a picture that a photographer took on set, and they sent it out to all the magazines and said, here's some pictures you can use when you promote or talk about Top Gun or what have you. It just irks the shit out of me. And I also hate when sequels retcon the ending of the original. Because as Top Gun ends... Uh, he tell he Ma- being Maverick pronouns pal tells Stinger or Strickland from Back to the Future that he's gonna go to be an instructor, an instructor, Top Gun. God help us all. That was kind of a mean Gene Okerlund mixed with Strickland, but you get the point. They're both short, bald guys, and it it turns out that Maverick was an instructor at Top Gun for two months before he got kicked out. So what did we really earn in that first film? It just shortchanges that. It's like Maverick lived in our minds as, well, yeah, Top Gun ends. He goes back. He's a instructor. Maybe he finds some happiness, lives his life, and we never come back to it again. All of a sudden, we get this requel, and it turns out the ending that we earned in the original Top Gun was just pointless because Maverick only found two months' worth of comfort and solace in his existence. Charlie is never mentioned, and I guess that's for the best. If there's one believable aspect of this character, it's that he probably was difficult to tie down. And I don't believe for a second what the Meg Ryan character said in the first one, that Maverick was, quote-unquote, in love with Charlie. Um, because, come on, guys, he's, he known her for, he's known her for like a week. I mean, sure, there's some hardcore physical attraction there. I mean, if you want to call it like first month love, that's something that I can buy in. He loves that she's around and they fuck and they have things to... I mean, you know, they both like fighter pilot. I mean, there's certainly a connection there. But it's not the deep love that can exist between two people who really complete one another. And I'm not trying to sound like a poet or wacky. It's just, you know, it is what it is. And speaking of Maverick and his love interest, I love Penny Benjamin. I love Jennifer Connelly as the character. I love that they brought back this character from the first one who appeared in name only when Viper is listing off all of the negative things that Maverick has done, including one flight with an admiral's daughter, Penny Benjamin. Penny Benjamin. You know, I mean, and that's a deep cut for fans, and I appreciate that. But there is some chemistry here. Um, and good lord. A year 2019 or whenever they filmed this Jennifer Conley, and I'm not trying to speak 
or sound like a stereotypical person, but my God, age has has been so kind to Ms. Conley. And I'm sure she's a super nice person, aside from all that. And hey, isn't she married to Vision? Good for you, Vision. No wonder you're always sounding so happy. But I digress. Maverick gets to play the role of, like, cool stepdad as well, which I think is very undercooked and underdeveloped when you consider the fact that he's supposed to have a father-like relationship with Bradley, or Rooster, the son of Goose. It kind of reeks of an unfinished script concept, or maybe a a polish or a touch-up, the interaction that he has with Penny Benjamin's daughter. And it's not deep or super what have you, but it does make me think that Maverick is like the ultimate stepdad, and I wanted to sort of bring that into the forefront. One of the last big parts of the Maverick-only story is the relationship with Iceman. And God damn it, it was so nice to see Val Kilmer here. You know, it really pulled at my heartstrings. Um, as a side note, can we just get that Joel Schumacher director's cut of Batman Forever released when Mr. Kilmer is around to enjoy it? Please, can we do that? Yes, it might be a little bit of a personal desire as well, but come on, do that for the Kilmster. He's earned it, hasn't he? Um, it's also unfortunate, too, as I'm recording this, that the, the trailer for the new Willow series on Disney Plus has uh, been released to the public, which, man, really pulled at my heartstrings unexpectedly when they played that music. But it's too bad that Mr. Kilmer is unable to participate in that. But I'm glad he's here. And working into the plot, Mr. Kilmer's true-to-life um, battles uh, was pretty pretty cool because it didn't shy away from it. It's like, you know what? Val is ice, and ice is Val. So let's merge these worlds together. And I like the fact that since Iceman is, and I, and I mean this, you know, in a in a way that's just to get the point across, he's a silent character, uh, you know, kind of because he has to be, but he acts as Maverick's sort of therapist conscience or what have you, because Maverick can. It's a one-sided conversation because Ice's contributions are text-based and also very to the point. And, it, you know, when you talk to yourself, which is maybe a, the reason why I podcast, you sort of reveal the truths that you hold within because you're not waiting to respond to someone's words. You're just kind of spilling your guts. And if there's one person that understands the conflict of Maverick because Ice himself was a fighter pilot, but it looks like throughout the years he played by the rules, he attained the rank of Admiral, and he acts as Maverick's guardian angel, and I appreciated that. I thought it was a really cool layer to not only bring the legacy of Top Gun into the forefront, but it felt like something that could honestly happen in the real world. A high-ranking person looking out for their old buddy who never kind of uh, got it all, got all their shit put together, felt kind of true. And I really appreciated that, and I'm glad that Val got a payday. Also, second build in the ending credits. I thought that was interesting as well, but damn it, hasn't the man earned it? I also enjoyed the, the, the small difference in the reason that we are at the Top Gun facility for this go-round. 
you know, it is a requel, but it's not an exact rehash. You know, all the pilots that we meet in this film are Top Gun graduates, and they have to come back to the staging or to the school, if you will, so they can stage this mission. So it's kind of a neat twist on getting the gang back together, but the gang in this case being the actual location. We get back to it's San Diego. Uh, in the on-screen text, I thought it was Miramar. Now, look, my uh, knowledge of the geographical scenarios within California notwithstanding, I- I'm not sure if Miramar and San Diego are like this. I know they're not like the same thing, but like, oh, I don't know. I've never been in New York City, but it's my understanding like the Bronx is a part of New York City. But your address doesn't say the Bronx, comma, NY, and then whatever the... At least I don't think it does. I think it says New York City. So, anywho, you know, everybody comes back to the Top Gun Fighter School, and that's where we do our training, and that's where Maverick, of course, reconnects with, uh, you know, his, his old flame and his old life, if you will. And speaking of Maverick's life, the last big point about Maverick's little independent portion of the movie that we've got going here is holy shit maverick has got some plot armor surrounding his life and if you're not familiar with plot armor it's kind of like um i don't know if you're watching indiana jones in the temple of doom you pretty much know indiana jones is safe the whole time even though you might buy into like oh no indy got stabbed or indy fell off a cliff the dude's got plot armor he's fucking indiana jones he's not gonna die um, it's like when you're watching Star Wars Episode 2. You know Obi-Wan's not going to die because he's in Episode 4, so what are you going to do? Now, we aren't aware necessarily that Maverick will survive because there's a sequel, but they do so many fake-outs. I felt like it really cheated Maverick's sort of desire to serve the mission in the greater good because he was never able he made the sacrifice but he never made the full sacrifice and I feel like that's a very 80s convention I feel like if this was a film that just existed on its own it well number one it'd be completely different but if it was a modern movie that was made just for modern audiences with modern purposes you might see the Tom Cruise character die um but you know, he also has legal plot armor because Maverick is breaking all types of rules and regulations and taxpayer dollars. Um, but hey, he's Maverick. He's Tom Cruise. He's not going to end up in jail for these, uh, you know, these rule breaks. And so I don't know. I don't know if that cheats it or not. It's just sort of one of those remnants of 80s film culture. You know, Axel Foley. Uh, may not read everyone their rights. I don't know if he's got warrants and shit. You know, I haven't seen Beverly Hills Cop in years, so I'm just using it as an example of another 80s film that might be egregious, in quotation marks. But the movie's not going to waste time with with reality, because that's not what it's here for. And speaking of not being here for reality, let's pivot over to the other half of the movie, the fucking 80s movie that lives within Top Gun Maverick. And what I'd like to, to introduce to everyone out there is a brand new rule of cinema okay it's a new concept that will basically tell you whether or not you buy into this movie uh free and clear or fair and square okay i'm calling this the rooster rule of cinema so you're sitting in the theater and we all know that miles teller is playing rooster bradley bradshaw 
cute name. Sounds like, <laughs> now on NXT, let's meet Bradley Bradshaw, the rooster. Definitely sounds like an NXT name. So when we first meet Rooster, it's a picture on a computer screen or like a, you know, a, a big display or whatever. And, you know, it's Miles Teller with a fucking porn stash. Okay, no, no nice way to put it. But when we meet the character proper, all of the pilots and Maverick are in the hard deck, which is the bar owned by Penny Benjamin. Cool bar, by the way. It's got some cool, crazy bar rules, kind of like another bar I know in the heart of NYC called Coyote Ugly, but I've already hit that point into the ground. Um, in this bar, though, all the naval aviators have arrived, and they're in, uh, you know, in the original Top Gun, everyone's in their white dress uniform or whatever. I don't know what they're called. I'm not in the military. Uh, correct me if necessary. But in Top Gun Maverick, they're all in like their khaki version of that, okay? So, Rooster shows up to the bar. And he's got his fucking aviators on at night. He's got an unbuttoned short sleeve Hawaiian style shirt. And I think he has a wife beater on underneath. Pardon the expression. It's just so everyone knows what I'm talking about. And, um, you know, fucking Rooster's here, man. The life of the party, I guess. Because he's dressed like he's the life of the party. He's dressed like, oh shit, here comes Rooster. Like, I half expected him to like start dancing on the bar from the way that he looks, okay? Now, throughout the film, we learn that Rooster is actually a cautious pilot. He flies within the rules, within the regulations. He doesn't want to be like Maverick because of who he actually is as a character. So why the fuck... Is he introduced to the audience, dressed the way he is, with the sort of ambiance that he carries? I'll tell you exactly why. Because we need to remind everyone that he's the son of Goose. He's Anthony Edwards' kid. So, dress him up. He's fucking cosplaying as Goose here. And that's the rooster rule of cinema. It doesn't make any sense or gel with his character... But it's a shortcut to let the audiences know what he's the stand-in for. And if you're okay with this, then you're going to be okay with Top Gun Maverick. And you're going to give it a 9 or a 10 out of 10, I would imagine. Now, this doesn't make me hate the film. And truthfully, even though my, I can hear my voice rising, it's just because I'm excited. Because uh, I think this is a lot of fun. I'm not really angry about it. It's just... You know, he's introduced as like, oh shit, here comes the roost. Oh man, what's he going to get up to? This guy's crazy. Just look at him. He doesn't dress like everybody else. He's a free spirit. And that might be true. He might be a free spirit in his personal time. I don't know shit about his personal time because the pilots are straight up in an 80s movie where we only know them by their call signs. We'll get to it, I promise. But the rooster rule indicates that none of that shit matters because he's just here to be Goose Part 2 for this particular scene. I don't know. It is what it is. Let's pivot to these actual characters and we'll go one by one. All right. So do you remember in the, in the intro we talked about likable characters that are just really likable and hateable characters that are just hateable? Well, we get a little bit of that here. But unfortunately, most of these pilots fall into a third category that I didn't anticipate. The I don't really give a fuck category. Alright? So, let's start with Ed Harris. Uh, the actor from The Rock. Alright? And he's in a, you know, a whole bunch else. Truman Show, what have you, what have you. 
I forget his call sign name. I think it's Kane, maybe, or maybe that's his last name. Irrelevant. He is just here to be um, the new version of Stinger or Principal Strickland from Back to the Future. The little guy, little bald guy. I got to send you to Miramar. We've talked about it enough. Uh, After Maverick breaks rules in his first appearance, just like in the original Top Gun, he's here to bust him down and then give him his new orders. Pretty cut and paste, guys. You don't get a pass from me. Let's talk about Cyclone, John Hamm, who apparently is a good actor. I've just never seen him in anything except his movie shit. I've never seen one episode of Mad Men, so whatever. I do love, we're given a few pieces of information about him. He's top of his class 88, which means uh, if Top Gun takes place in 86, because I think it was released then, so he's like, you know, he's two years below Maverick, but he's the best. He's the Iceman of that generation. Well, it's not a different generation, but of that class. It's pretty cut and dry and makes us understand that Cyclone is going to be our stick in the mud. Okay? He's got a sidekick, Warlock. What a voice on this guy. All right? This guy needs, if, 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 if he's ever unable to book another acting part, he's got plenty of uh, work ahead of him in the audiobooks department. Other than that, though, I don't really have anything on him. He's, he's got less development than Jester, for God's sakes. Let's talk about Payback and Fanboy. These guys are Hollywood and Wolfman 2.0 without any of the memorable shit that Hollywood and Wolfman do. The memorable shit that they had being the openly uh, gay couple in the original Top Gun that had some decently iconic lines. Where'd who go? Don't tease me. Or this gives me a hard on. Don't tease me, etc., etc. I don't know a goddamn thing about Payback and Fanboy, except they're there in the end and they get shot down. Or do they get shot down? Um, it's irrelevant. It, it, they, they do come into conflict, but I think they're okay in the end. Uh, but they're just... They're just here to be there at the end. They offer nothing, and that's no disrespect to these guys. It's just what the script does for them. Phoenix. Nothing interesting about her at all. Nothing memorable, except she's the female pilot that we focus on. I believe there are two. I think there's Halo and Phoenix. Did you even know that there was another one in Halo? And it's not important. I'm not trying to focus. I know I spent a little bit in the intro about how you know, there weren't any female characters aside from Charlie and Meg Ryan, really, in the entire first film. And while I am glad that the plot didn't really spend much, there might have been a throwaway line here or there. I think it's like, you hear that, Phoenix? He called you a man. But there's no, like, oh, come on, Phoenix. You know, you got to fly with your dick. Oh, well, you can't be. Like, there's no, like, egregious nonsense but the Phoenix character is totally underdeveloped. I didn't know if they were going to go with her as being like a love interest for Rooster. There seemed to be some sort of established connection there, whether it's they've flown together before, they served on missions, what have you, what have you. Uh, but Phoenix does, I guess she's our narrator for the bar scene. She She's like, oh, this is Hangman, blah, blah, blah. Oh, this is Bob, blah, blah, blah. Oh, here comes Rooster, blah, blah, blah. Uh, she, I, I don't know. Like it, The performance is fine. Like, it's just, it's not, the Phoenix is not a character. You know, I can't think of anything memorable or interesting that the character contributed. Then we pivot to her Rio. I don't even know if it's called a Rio anymore. It's Bob. That's his call sign. His name's Robert, but his call sign is Bob, which they tease, don't tell him what it stands for, and they never reveal it at all. 
The most interesting thing about Bob is he's the son of legendary actor Bill Pullman, who you might remember as the president from Independence Day. And just as a side note, I talked about all those memorable Top Gun quotes that I've used in my personal life. When Bill Pullman in Independence Day yells, Doesn't anyone have any missiles left? I love his inflection and his delivery, and I've used that in my personal life. Like if I'm in the fridge, and I'm digging for a Diet Mountain Dew, and I can't find it, I might yell, Doesn't anyone have any missiles left? But Bob's the nerd. And I don't know what else. But at least the nerd fits those 80 stereotypes. So that does make him memorable. Hangman. I want a goddamn Hangman Paramount Plus show because he was the most interesting of the pilots. Now, in reality, I don't actually want a Hangman Paramount Plus show. But here's what I like about Hangman. He's obviously the cocky blonde guy. He's the Top Gun Maverick version of Iceman from the original when he came into conflict with Maverick. Now, he comes into conflict with Maverick because Hangman's one of those dudes that thinks he knows everything, blah, blah, blah. But the nice twist they put on the cocky blonde guy is that in the original Top Gun, nobody wants to fly like Maverick. Maverick's wrong. Maverick's way of doing things is awful. But in Top Gun Maverick... They need his crazy balls-to-the-wall flying style to accomplish this mission. And even though Hangman's the cocky guy, he wants to... He's buying into the Maverick philosophy of fucking balls-to-the-wall, get in there, nuke everything, etc., etc. So I like that reversal. I enjoy the fact that he's, like, buying into Maverick's shtick, but for, quote-unquote, all the wrong reasons. And he does get sidelined at the end, but who didn't predict him showing up for the final conflict? I thought he'd have more of a role in the final conflict, but I mean, for God's sakes. It's like having The Rock walking backstage and running into Mick, and Mick letting him know that he's got his back in case uh, Triple H and DX interfere in his match. It's like, once it happens... We're just waiting for Mick Foley to show up. So once we see Hangman on deck in his fucking uniform waiting for the call, you know he's going to show up. But I guess that's filmmaking. Finally, Rooster. I like... I I talked about Miles Teller in in the first part. I think this performance is fine. Okay? The Rooster character is a means to an end. I didn't like him or dislike him I didn't really have any buy-in with him until the ending when he gets shot when he rescues Maverick and he gets shot down and this whole like when when Maverick and Rooster are on the ground without planes behind enemy lines in the uh, Red Star country I guess we'll call it I was so thrown out of the movie because I was like um this is unexpected. I didn't expect a soldiers on foot behind enemy lines movie. And thank God it didn't last long. But where was Miles Teller the whole rest of the movie? Because here, when they finally get together, Rooster is a fantastic buddy sidekick. I mean, he's basically just doing goose. But man, I was missing it. I could have watched... 
if if you and obviously there's no movie if Rooster and Maverick get along the whole time, but I liked Miles and Tom together as like buddies. I don't know any other way to describe it. I it's like the whole Rooster character came to life when he let go, and he said, "Talk to me, Dad." And I don't like how. Maverick says, talk to me, Goose, and Rooster just so happens to say, talk to me, Dad. I mean, come on, script. I don't know. It's an 80s movie. What are you going to do? But that's the Rooster I wanted the whole time. The stuffed shirt Rooster was totally uninteresting, and the fun, like, snarky Rooster at the end is more in line with that open Hawaiian shirt guy we got in the bar scene. Uh Uh-oh, here comes Rooster. But I don't get it. I don't know. Uh, So, I guess I give Rooster a passing grade for being a character because, number one, he is a more uh, involved character that you know more about. But that last sequence really, really was entertaining. And I just wish we would have gotten a little more of that Rooster throughout the whole film. Um, But hey, if you're looking for an annoying brat or some snot-nosed kid you can't stand... Miles Teller seems to be your go-to guy in Hollywood for that. I will say this about all the 80s pilots, though, before I wrap up the uh, 80s film that they happen to live in, aside from everybody else. Man, they sure did look good on that beach playing that double football game. Is that a real thing? Is this going to be like a new sport that's invented? Kind of like basketball? I love that movie. And I will freely admit that me and my buddies played basketball for real, in real life, following the rules of the actual basketball game. I don't know if it goes down in history as iconic as the volleyball scene, but man, oh man, it was, I don't know why, but it just hit me in the right spot. Uh, And that's not a joke. I get the jokes. I hear the jokes and it's, you know, I get it. It's okay. These guys, fuck man. Uh, I would have, I'd kill to fucking be as cut as Rooster is in that scene. So, you know, I'm allowed to admire that. But I don't know. I thought it was fun. It was goofy and it was stupid and it was a nice callback. But I want to know if double football lives on in our, our cultural zeitgeist. If you know the rules of double football, hit me up on Twitter at TheJohnnyC so I can start playing it in my neighborhood with all the other dads. Shirts off as well. So buy a ticket for that. Let's talk about the filmmaking involved in this actual movie. I mean, it goes without saying. This is, I'm sure this will be the one thing that regardless of how you feel about the movie, the universal praise will be given to the filmmaking. The aerial stunts, the aerial photography, I mean, it's just all top-notch and felt so cool to be practical. The fisheye lens feeling that I got from the uh, pilot's cockpit view this go-around was a little strange, but I liked it because you could see their entire surroundings. It wasn't as tight as the frame is in the original Top Gun, and I'm totally cool with that. I love the sound barrier breaking like cloud. I don't know any other scientific way to describe it. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to sound stupid, but I love that effect. It's so fucking cool, and it just makes these Jets look awesome, and it, I don't know, it just adds a nice dimension to it. I saw it in IMAX, of course, it was fucking brilliant. Uh, The non-IMAX 
filmed scenes transition, you know, because it all the screen always gets a little smaller. It didn't really jump out as much as it has in other films, although it was noticeable per usual. The sound design, absolutely fantastic. The score, I like the score. It's a little too heavy. Like the Top Gun anthem and what have you is definitely a little bit heavier than it is in the original in terms of like the guitar uh, sound. Not as much synth, I felt like. I feel like it's it's like it's weird because in the in the eighties version I feel like it's actual like real synthesizer sound. Uh, it feels a little bit more simulated in Top Gun Maverick, but I don't know much about like the science of music, so I apologize if that sounds stupid. It's just the only way that I know how to describe it. In the end though, um, I feel like that was the given, was the the filmmaking, the photography, that was always going to come... I mean, we knew that from the trailers, that it was going to look beautiful. The one only real uh, CGI glare that stood out to me was when they were at Iceman's funeral, and he got the overhead flyby from the Jets, and holy shit, those stood out like a sore thumb as fictional, but I understand why you didn't do it. You didn't have a practical version of it to do. Seems very expensive to set up a shot like that. And speaking of expensive, I do wonder what this is going to do at the box office. You know, I saw this in the exact same theater, in the exact same seat as Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, and that was shoulder to shoulder. This Top Gun Maverick was not like that at all. It was sparse. Um, It was an easy in and out of the theater, no line for concessions, and that's just a silly experience that I had, but I do wonder what the box office is going to be like. I did see plenty of people in their Top Gun t-shirts, leather coats, and aviator glasses, and lots of selfies in front of the Top Gun standees, so I don't know what that means. I just like observing shit like that as I sit in seat P23 and just people watch. I guess that's a bad habit that I have, but I'm I'm always interested how people react to cinema. You know, the last thing you want to do is walk up to me randomly and be like, oh, what are you doing this weekend? You want to see a movie? Because I'll talk your fucking ear off. But I'm always curious if other people feel the same way about these cinematic events or if they're just here because they just want to do something for a couple hours. It always is hard to tell. Put a bow on Top Gun Maverick. How do you do it? Do you give it a ranking? numerically. I think I did that with Doctor Strange, so I'll do something here too. So I think I gave Doctor Strange a seven and a half because I felt that eight was too much of a leaning towards it's actually really good. Oh, this is so hard to do because I feel like overall it's like a seven, okay? Because an 8 indicates that it's really good. Now, I think your mileage varies here. I think it's an easy 7, period. But if you're dismayed by the 80s-ness of it, you're going to lower that score. And I feel like it blends modern filmmaking and old-school filmmaking and also apes the right kind of stuff to make it an easy, watchable 7. It's not self-aware cheese. It is self-aware cheese, if that makes sense, but it's not cheesy. It's not like tongue-in-cheek, like let's all laugh at it. It's like, hey guys, remember the good times we used to have? Well, I think we need a good time, so let's have a good time like we did back in the day. 
And that's where I'm going to wrap this up. It's it, it's a it's a Frankenstein film, not in a way that's like it was put together in the editing bay and it's like, oh God, this movie was awful. We can barely save it. But it's a tale of two movies. Like I said, none of them are perfect and great like on their own, but put them together and I don't know. It's just the right amount of two-hour popcorn fare. Um, it was a, it was a, it was a cool experience. I can't remember the last time I saw a movie that was just kind of like a movie. You know, this isn't like a big Marvel DC production. It's not some crazy thing that has all this. You know, it's like a, oh, this is the fourth Star Wars spinoff or whatever. I don't know. It was just a movie. It's a movie like they used to make movies that happen to be a sequel to a classic. And uh, a classic meaning like what? Like Top, Top Gun's a classic for all the reasons we talked about. It's not some great, crazy, like Godfather level cinema achievement. But you know what? Sometimes having fun in the cinema is achievement on itself. And I would definitely recommend it. I mean, hopefully you've seen it because I spoiled the hell. Well, I never spoil all of it. Just, you know, because there's not a lot to spoil. I mean, it's just Top Gun again. Um, Oh, I do want to say the the ending fight sequence to to go back to the filmmaking. The ending was great. Once that, once they took, once we got to the aircraft carrier, and the planes took off, I had a, I had, was I had a smile on my face all the way up until the end. Although, again, they ape the ending of the original Top Gun even so much. I thought at the end when everybody was hugging and Hangman and Rooster were now buddies going forward and Maverick saved the day and Maverick and and Rooster were a-okay I would have sworn I wouldn't have put it past this script to have Maverick pull out like a fishing pole throw it into the ocean pull up Goose's dog tags and be like here you go Rooster these are yours now (laughs) Ah, but hey it's a good time at the cinema it's not going to change the world it's not going to alter your perspective of cinema moving forward but damn it it was fun and i think it was money well spent and that's going to wrap it up here for the top gun maverick analysis thank you so much for checking it out like and subscribe write a review for the north south connection podcast network Give us your feedback. Let us know if you want to hear more stuff like this for the big movies that are going to keep coming out into the future. And if you're listening to this on Memorial Day weekend, have a great time. Stay safe. Don't do anything that Maverick wouldn't do himself. And if you're listening to it on not Memorial Day weekend, hey, go out, have fun, be safe, but maybe get into some sort of shenanigans like Maverick would. I am Johnny C., And it was my pleasure to bring you this information. You guys, uh, try to think of a fun catchphrase to wrap it up. You know what? It's okay. Everybody, I'll see you the next time Hollywood drops a big blockbuster on our doorstep. There we go. I love it.